Let's Science is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. We live in a universe of scientific wonders. Every day, scientists are inching towards breakthroughs which can change our lives. We're playing our small part in sharing these wonders with you. That's why today is a fine day for science. So let's science. So Caroline, we've got a uh, we've got a couple of topics today. So you've got one, and I've got one that I'm gonna I'm gonna try and work my way through. I hope yeah. it's a bit of fun. But Caroline, start us off and tell us about uh, Dolly the dinosaur which sounds like a kid's show, by the way, <laughs> reveals evidence of respiratory infections in sauropods. Over to yes. you, Caroline. Yeah, so have you felt a bit sniffly lately getting yes. back into, you know, <laughs> no lockdowns and re, you know, getting in touch with people again and getting all the colds and flus that are going around again? Can I just say, <laughs> I haven't been sick, right? Yeah. But just being around people, I feel like I'm sick, like I've got a cold. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. So like oh, I look no. at a person like it's like you know a person walks yeah. one centimeter past my yeah. face, and I'm like, oh, is that a scratchy throat? Or yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah. what lockdown has done to us. That's what it's I'm done to us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I bet there's some science behind that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Broken so, psychology. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you get the sniffles sometimes. Did you know that poor dinosaurs living about 150 million years ago had the sniffles as well. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So an 18-meter long dinosaur named Dolly, um, who was a species related to a Diplodocus, um, she lived about 150 million years ago in southwestern Montana. Um, her bones, her fossilized skull and neck bones were found in 1990 and um, they've been um, studied and it was found that three of her neck bones were um, analysed and found to have like broccoli-shaped growth on her vertebrae. And she she was estimated to about 15 to 20 years old when she died. Um, the, so these broccoli-shaped growths were lesions and they were on her fifth, six and seven vertebrae. And... This is consistent with a chronic lung and upper uh, respiratory uh, condition. And the fact that there were lesions, it indicates that um, her illness, her respiratory illness was so severe it caused a secondary infection. You know, like when you get a cold and then for some reason after you're so run down, you get a bacterial infection or something and you have to take antibiotics. So that's the secondary infection. So... The first seven vertebrae in her neck would have connected to her lungs and other parts of her respiratory systems, and they contained air sacs. Um, the broccoli-shaped growths, or the, the lesions, protruded by, by about one centimetre from the vertebrae. She would have, when she had this illness, you know, like everyone else, she would have been suffering from fever, br laboured breathing, a cough, and would have had a runny snout. Poor oh. thing. Can you imagine a dinosaur sneeze? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness, it'll be so snout, loud. Yeah. Yeah. Not the snout okay. part, but I can relate to everything else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true, that's true. Mm -hmm. um, scientists aren't exactly sure what caused the illness, but it could have been bacterial or viral or fungal, and it's thought that the environment at that time would have been quite humid, so it could have been quite easy to catch something, you know, there would have been, you know, a bit of mould or 
fungi in the air or some bacteria happily living and you know viruses have been around for a bazillion years as well yeah. so when you, when you um, said fungi I was waiting for Lena to crash a, mu- a cracker a mushroom uh, drink no no I'm not going to say anything for that yeah. <laughs> thank you <laughs> um, I wanted to sure. acknowledge that we were thinking that <laughs> um, they're not sure if Dolly died from the illness but um, they know that she had the chronic infection from her um, fossilized vertebrae. Um, I'll just read you a little bit from this article because it's it's pretty um, it's a good explanation. So, um, Carrie Woodruff, a paleontologist at the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum in Montana, had seen other anom- anom- oh, anomalies in sauropod vertebrae before, but had never seen anything like this. Um, She took to social media to ask other colleagues about the abnormal growths and got immediate responses from other avian and reptile experts who compared the marks to an illness seen in reptiles and birds alive today called air sacculitis, which describes inflammation in the air sacs caused by viruses or bacteria. Um, from CT scans and comparison to other diseases, diseased animal bones, the researchers suspect air sacculitis was a respiratory response to bacterial or fungal infection like chlamydiosis and aspergillosis, which later caused an infection in the neck bones. These respiratory infections are seen in birds and reptiles today and can lead to bone infections. And also another interesting fact, sauropods are more closely related to birds than other dinosaurs and researchers suspect that they share similar anatomical traits like their complex respiratory systems. So that's um, pretty interesting. So, you know, we know that birds most likely descended from the dinosaurs and, you know, reptiles, you know, so... um, it's just amazing that we can um, see this kind of thing in dinosaurs and recognize it from today's, you know, animals. Um, the, the discovery of Dolly's um, lung condition isn't the first, but it's the oldest ever found in a non-avian dinosaur. Um, and it was outlined in a paper um, published in the journal Scientific Reports in February 10th this year. Previously, dinosaurs have discovered a fossil of T-Rex, which became infected with a parasite and died. And they found that one in 2019. And they've also found a marine animal that lived about 245 million years ago that had tuberculosis. And (laughs) so they're able to find these amazing things. They've also found cancers and gouts and obviously injuries that um, dinosaurs have um, sustained, you know, through fighting or falling or whatever. So isn't that amazing? Um, Something that lived so long ago, we can actually do an investigation like a cold cold crime scene or something and and actually, you know, actually decipher what what illness they died from. So um, I just thought that was super interesting and, you know. I I actually felt sorry for that dinosaur. I just wanted to give them a lemon tea, you know. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I I just, it's it's something that you don't think about, honestly. Like, you know, when you talk about dinosaurs and how they lived, what they ate, how big they got, you know, how old they 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 looked like. Yeah, yeah, what they looked like and did they have feathers or didn't they have feathers (laughs) or how big were their teeth. You never really think... 
all Did the poor things. Did they ever get a cold? Yeah, get a cold. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, what and a there flu, was no, but... no one really to look after them, to give them medicine or whatever. They just had to suffer through it and they either lived or didn't. So Yeah, and can I just point out, this segment is not viral marketing for Universal Studios for Jurassic World 3 Dominion. Just <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. Wow, yeah. Caroline, I can't believe all those went flu and, not flu, sorry, I keep on saying that, cold and everything way well, back they could have had flus. I mean, they're not sure if it was, what yeah, it came from. Poor so. things. Yeah. Oh, like, you know, poor dinosaurs, I know. We, we, we worry about our pets here. Well, of course we do, of course we do, and you think, yeah, I think a dinosaur. Hey, a dinosaur and all of this sneezes on you. Oh, my goodness, man, they'll be so big. But the poor things, yeah. That scene from, uh, from the original, speaking of Jurassic Park, <laughs> yes. and this is not viral marketing, yes. but the, the, the Brachiosaurus where it sneezes on the kid. Remember? That's right. Wow. I was trying to remember. I did see yeah. that, That's and I was great. trying to remember yeah. where, which, where yes. I saw that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, all right, well, Caroline, I'll, I'll have a go now. We're, there's a, another article that we... We thought we'd share. Yeah, um, I'm interested in this so, one, actually. So I'll do the short <laughs> version of this because <laughs> because it's pretty technical as well. Uh, so uh, moving to outer space now, I found this great article on space.com. Could we really build Star Trek's USS Enterprise? Just how close are scientists to building, you know, a Constitution-class starship? So let's have a look at this. Um, so it, first of all, it was launched from the mind of Gene Roddenberry in the 1960s, and it was the the familiar ship that we all knew and loved from Star Trek, the original series, and right through the movies and right through all these different iterations of Star Trek. Um, so the the uh, the ship in Star Trek is called a Constitution class. This is the, we're going with the original series one as our, our, our standard okay. here, right? Okay, so, yep, and, okay. Yep, and it was launched in the year 2245 in Star Trek, not in our time, right? So <laughs> well, yeah, I wouldn't be yep. surprised if it would take that, that long to build it, wouldn't it, Linz? No. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, who, yeah, I don't know, who knows? It's, uh, the problem is I wasn't there, so... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, so in, uh, in this timeline, so we're not going with the Kelvin universe for all the nerds out there, all right? Uh, oh, sorry, for all the fans, I should say. Um, so it, uh, it was built in space as opposed to the Kelvin universe one, which is built on land. So that's just J.J. Abrams' brain, don't worry about that. Um, but it was built in, built in space and uh, it was a feat of fictional engineering. It's estimated that it would weigh around uh, so something over 4 million tons. It would house a crew of about 430 people. And in comparison, the heaviest man-made object to venture into space is the International Space Station, which is 419 tons. So nothing really. Um, so it says here, however, China is reportedly researching the possibility of constructing a colossal spacecraft that measures up to 0.96 kilometers in length. Whereas the um, the International Space Station is only 110 meters long, so this if China did this, it would be something massive. Yeah, so um, engineers still have 233 years, according to this article, to make this to make the USS Enterprise a reality. So we've got a bit of time, but I'd just say don't leave it to the last minute. All right, so just yeah, <laughs> yeah. If we want to make something that's a bit Enterprise-like, so um, the main role of this ship was to um, explore strange new worlds. You know, uh, we know the, uh, you know, no, we go the, boldly yeah, go to boldly go man, where no one has gone, no man's before, gone yeah. before, you know, go on diplomatic missions and so on. Um, but to, to assist in their journey, the enterprise, um, was equipped with an array of advanced sensors and scanners. So before, for example, going to a foreign planet, you know, beaming down to a new world, the crew, first of all, flipped a few switches, as it says here, and scans the planet for life signs and, you know, pathogens and, you know, to find out if, uh, you know, if the atmosphere was correct. You know, is it M-class? You know, all that, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, amazing how many M-class planets they found. But yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, really, I'm glad yeah, to see the story every so week. True. So fair enough. Yeah. 
So um, sensors are a pretty handy gadget to have, um, but they may seem unrealistic. However, scientists are one step closer to making this technology a reality. And Caroline, this is where you might need to chime in. All right, so here we go. Researchers have discovered that the biochemistry of all life forms interact with light in a way that inorganic or artificial materials don't. For example, when light hits a long chain of carbon molecules that make up amino acids, it becomes circulatory, circulatory polarized. This means it travels in either clockwise or anti-clockwise spirals. So scientists could theoretically observe and identify this light interaction in the hopes of discovering new life forms from observatories of spacecraft, um, such as the Enterprise, <laughs> or from future space-based telescopes such as the Large UV Optical Infrared Surveyor, or Louvois as it's called. We might do a, an episode on that later on. Uh, one of the most um, other iconic abilities of the Enterprise is to travel at warp speed. And I think we've actually done a, a thing on warp drive before. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, I was about yeah. to text you, poor Caroline, did you, you did that warp theory. Uh, yeah, attempting to explain warp difficult. drive. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I didn't want to she wanted to go through that again, would she? <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 Okay. The, um, okay. The, the basic way that they describe it here um, is that, first of all, we don't have anything that's anywhere near being able to replicate a warp drive. Um, and the, the, um, the theory behind it, the research into it, started around the early 1990s. And considering that Star Trek started in the 1960s, it took them a while to get themselves into gear. But anyway, we'll forgive them for that. They're, again, they've got a couple of hundred years, so you know, let's, they've started it. So to achieve a speed faster than light, physics uh, natural speed limit, theoretical physicist uh, Miguel Alcubierre, sorry about that, proposed that we uh, might bend the fabric of space-time. And they said space-time can be imagined as a sheet of rubber on which all matter sits, creating dips in the rubber, you know, like shapes relative to their mass. So he proposed that if space-time could be folded in front of a spaceship and then expanded behind it, the ship could travel much faster than the speed of light to achieve what we would call warp speed. So you, if you think of Star Wars, you know, they travel at light speed, or at least that's what they call it. Warp speed is going beyond that speed. So incredibly, you know, think of ludicrous speed from Spaceballs or something like that. Right? Incredibly fast. <laughs> yes. So this, um, this, bending, like yeah, sorry, this bending of space-time would theoretically continue to move in a wave and act as a conveyor belt. So it's not that the ship is traveling so fast, it's that space is moving the objects really fast. Um, so like it was on a conveyor belt. And so they, it would then be encased in what's called a warp bubble. Um, and so a warp bubble in this case would be um, a, an amount of negative mass energy um, that would facilitate this warp drive. And uh, it says it would be the equivalent mass of a massive star distributed in a ring around the spaceship. One of the limitations that we have, of course, is that we can't generate anything like that yet. So this hypothetical ring of negative mass energy would create this warp bubble, distort space-time and transport any spacecraft within it. So it's like a bubble carrying it at these, at these crazy speeds. Um, one way to imagine that is uh, they, the analogy they gave was imagine you're standing, you know, on a on a um, a seven four seven while it's flying, and you don't you know you know you don't get thrown to the back or the front, you know, because the because the plane is moving. You're able to walk around while it's traveling at you traveling know, at, the, at speed the same that speed. Yeah, that's yeah. It. 
so that that's kind of the theory behind that. Um, there's some other there's some other theories here about uh, about using you know matter and antimatter. Uh, you know, to create that that energy. However, the issue is we can't actually create enough antimatter yet. So um, the Fermi National Acceleratory, Accelerator Laboratory, or Fermilab, which is much easier to say, can only produce enough antimatter in an hour to power one one thousandth, thousandth of a watt and would therefore need 100,000 Fermilabs Whoa, to power a single light bulb. <laughs> so, we're, so we're not quite there just yet. Yeah. So, and also, due to the fact that antimatter annihilates when it comes in contact with matter, storing it is near impossible right now, because everything is made of matter. So, uh, so we have some issues there. So despite these quantum woes, researchers, research into antimatter spacecraft is still in development. One of the latest advan- advancements in antimatter propulsion is NASA's proposal for a space probe that will travel all the way to our stellar neighborhood Proxima Centauri using an annihilation accelerator. But until scientists can can successfully mass-produce and store antimatter, powering a spacecraft that resembles the Enterprise is still firmly in the realm of imagination. So so we're not quite there yet, guys, but they're thinking about it. You know, I think we... I know, like, um, you know deep space travel is something that people want to do. But I think something more fun, like some, doing something more local, local as in our solar system, it's vast. But imagine like, say, like a scientific ship, say, like the Enterprise, but it would be slower <laughs> and something more achievable. And you could be doing scientific experiments as you travel from planet to planet. Say you do an exercise from going from Earth down to Pluto. Yes, Pluto's mm. planet. And, Definitely. Ooh, yep. And, um, yeah, I heard about that. Yes. And like, imagine if you could, like, this has sparked my imagination now, but say like you could go from planet to planet and like you mentioned, you know, um, using light and wavelengths and stuff to analyze um, the atmosphere, see if there's any organic chemical, you know, chemistry and all that sort of sort of thing. I reckon we could just like have these scientific ships going out, people doing the analysis using um, analyzers, because I've got an analyzer background in my in my job. Uh, yep. So we Ooh, we, yeah. we yeah. Uh, measure yeah. emissions, you know, in my job. Um, so. You could either say float down or send down probes that have these analyzers, in, and you could be analyzing in real time. Um, you could be using spectrometers from the ship, you, you know, to see what kind of molecules are around and and all of that kind of thing, and doing that kind of analysis. And then you could be shooting down little um, probes that land on the planet, you know, depending on what planet it is and if it has a surface. And I mean, this maybe we could do. Um, interplanetary travel rather than deep space. And, you know, maybe from there um, we could work out, we could learn more about travel in space and then develop these engines. They're the necessary first steps before thinking about interstellar travel, aren't they, our solar system. That's it. I mean, they are going to the moon and to Mars. But I reckon if you have long missions like that, you could learn so much. I think it would be so interesting. And I'm sure a lot of people put their hands up, you know, and be like, yes, I want to do this. Yeah, a lot of people. It would be amazing. Yeah, Yeah, it's small steps, isn't it? Yeah, it's just small steps, then work on and you know, do the experiments like you said, Caroline, and then work from that. And go, then do we could go to deep space. But start start small, you know, from here to the moon and wh- whoever we can go to. But it's, it is fun to think about, can we get 
to places in deep space really fast. But you've got to be able to get back. That's the other thing. That's the other thing, yeah. Of course, it's got to be, it's got to be a two-way trip. It can't be one way. Yeah. Well, straight, I, I, yeah. There's one thing we need to... Um, you talk about Star Trek is teleportation. That's oh, that's a totally different. That's thing. a whole other oh, thing. Well, yeah, yeah, that's Willy a, Wonka, he did it. Like yeah. chocolate well, bar. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, we moved, need that. Put the little boy in the thing, and then he came even Definitely. a little smaller boy. You know, we need to stretch um, him out after. You should hear uh, Jimmy Aiken talking about transporters in, in Secrets <laughs> of Star Trek. And oh, the idea I have that, to watch that. Because, you know, basically because a, a, a transporter essentially deconstructs your body, yes. converts yes. it to a signal, and then reconstructs it again. So. In a sense, what he likens it to, it kills you. Yes. You know, c- c- converts you to to um to a signal, and then it clones you a copy of you and puts everything back in again. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. If it yeah, kills it you, sense. I'm not sure you'd be alive again on the other yeah. side. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, say. yeah. So, uh, fun stuff. Oh, we'll right. be quicker to get to uh, to work. Come on, guys. You know, oh, I would of love to teleport up, to work. Waking yeah. up. An hour early? Why not? No, 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 no. Let's just get to work. Give us, give us a few seconds to get to work. There we could go. work anywhere in the planet, on the planet then, couldn't you? You wouldn't have to. You definitely would. You well, definitely Star would. Trek, um, this is one cool thing that uh, Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Discovery, they've got different versions. So in Star Trek, in a recent episode of Star Trek Picard, it's not a spoiler, they're at Starfleet Academy and there's like this uh, like loop, like an oval thing, like person size. You walk through it and it teleports you to wherever you're going. And then uh, Star Trek Discovery, their com badges are transporters now, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. They, so wow. they just tap it, you know, like and tap it and go wherever they need to go. Like really, tap and go. yes, tap and go, tap and go, new kind of tap and go. Yeah. Let Science is brought to you by StarQuest Media and is a fortnightly podcast that brings you the scientific wonders of our universe from a distinctly Catholic point of view. For more from Caroline, Lindsay, and friends, listen to the StarQuest show. Catholics of Oz. Find links from today's show at sqpn.com slash science and find the Catholics of Oz at sqpn.com slash Oz. Be sure to follow the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you can find podcasts or on the SQPN YouTube channel. The generous donations of our patrons at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Let's Science and all the shows at StarQuest, which makes our nonprofit mission possible. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Join us next time for more scientific wonders. And thank you for listening to Let's Science on StarQuest.